Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is entitled, Mary's Magnificat, All Generations Will Call Her Blessed, and is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, December 24, 2006, the fourth Sunday in Advent. When I was in Oxford a few years ago, every evening I left my study carol and walked down Woodstock Road to the city center and attended the Evensong services at Maudlin College. I love so many things about those 30 minutes of worship. The quiet, the architecture, the history. Maudlin College was founded in 1448. The smell of the candles that lit the early darkness of October the boys' choir with robes, and even the formal liturgy. But one part of Evensong surprised me. Every single night we sang Mary's Magnificat, which is Luke's gospel for this week. Why did the daily liturgy assign Mary such prominence? Why was she so important? In the small Presbyterian church where I grew up, Every Sunday we recited the Apostles' Creed that Jesus was, quote, born of the Virgin Mary, end quote. But in fact, Mary played no role at all in my Christian identity. Later I learned that Protestants question dogmas about Mary that were codified quite recently and that do not enjoy unequivocal biblical support, like her perpetual virginity, her freedom from actual and original sin, and the idea that she didn't die but was taken directly to heaven. Protestants also get agitated about exalted language that sounds like Mary is a co-redeemer of humanity. And in popular devotion, the cult of Mary can drift into excess and superstition. And so we Protestants emphasize a caveat that even Catholics and the Orthodox acknowledge that Christians honor or venerate Mary as the Son of God, but we certainly don't worship her, which worship is due to God alone. Nevertheless, you might argue that no woman has influenced Western history and culture more than Mary. Her Magnificat in Luke chapter 1, 46 to 55, takes its name from the first word of the Latin text, Listen to Mary's song. My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty-handed. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. Just how 
And why then do we venerate Mary? First of all, Mary was a woman of exemplary faith. She was a peasant girl from a working class neighborhood of carpenters in Nazareth, a village so insignificant that it's not mentioned in the Old Testament, not by the historian Josephus, nor even by the Jewish Talmud. In John 1.46, Nathanael asks, can any good thing come from Nazareth? Mary's angelic encounter took place in an unknown ordinary house, not the temple. When the angel Gabriel foretold the birth of her son Jesus, Mary responded in words of faith that have echoed through the centuries. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. Her bold belief startled her pregnant cousin Elizabeth, who exclaimed in a loud voice, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. Blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. Catholics remind us of a second Marian truth that's easy to overlook, but nevertheless stupendous. In some mysterious way, the Incarnation resulted not only from the work of God the Father, but also from the will of the Mother Mary. Numerous Church Fathers acknowledge Mary's active cooperation in the history of salvation. According to Thomas Aquinas, for example, human redemption depended upon the consent of the pregnant teenager Mary. She did not ask to bear the Son of God, nor was she compelled to do so. She might have said no, or, like Zechariah, responded to Gabriel's staggering annunciation in disbelief. But she did not shrink from God's call on her life, and as a result, enriched all humanity by her willing participation and obedient submission. Mary was also a woman of prophetic announcement. Her Magnificat moves from the deeply personal to the explicitly political. God, Mary proclaims, has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. The Mighty One has done great things for me. This peasant girl, who a few months later would bear the Son of God, then praises God the Mighty One because he has, quote, brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. I wonder what Herod or Tiberius thought when they heard Mary's words. The incarnation of the Son of God, Mary announced, meant the inversion of conventional wisdom dethroning political power, plundering rich people, and redistributing food signaled a new age in a new order. Finally, Eastern Orthodox believers emphasize that the Son of Mary would be the Son of God, God made flesh. And so they honor Mary with the technical term Theotokos, bearer of God. In his poem, The Annunciation, John Donne thus marvels. Listen to his poem. 
Salvation to all that will is nigh. That all, which always is all everywhere, which cannot sin, and yet all sins must bear, which cannot die, yet cannot choose but die, lo, faithful virgin, yields himself to lie in prison in thy womb. And though he there can take no sin, nor thou give, yet he will wear, taken from thence flesh, which death's force may try. Ere by the spheres time was created, thou wast in his mind, who is thy son and brother, whom thou conceivest, conceived. Yea, thou art now thy maker's maker, and thy father's mother. Thou hast light in dark, and shuttest in little room, immensity cloistered in thy dear womb. This term, Theotokos, bestowed upon Mary by church fathers since the third century, acknowledges her special role in redemption. Mary is nothing less than the mother of God. But when the term gained official status at the Third Ecumenical Council of Ephesus in 431, the intent was to emphasize the full divinity of the Son more than the privileged status of the mother. Mary did not give birth to a mere man, a mere Christotakos, as the Nestorians taught. No, she bore a child who was fully divine. If you wonder why Catholics and the Orthodox refer to Mary as the Blessed Virgin, consider again the Gospel for this week. Blessed are you among women, Elizabeth said. From now on, all generations shall call me blessed, Mary acknowledged. Veneration of the Mother of God leads to exaltation of the Son of God which is precisely the message of Christmas. In her own words, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. And now for further reflection. What has been your experience of Mary? Number two, with which of the four aspects of Mary do you most fully resonate? Number three, what other subversions of cultural conventions might follow those of food, money, and political power, all because of the incarnation? Fourth, maybe this Christmas listen to Bach's rendition of the Magnificat. And then finally, for further reading and reflection, See the books by Yaroslav Pelikan, Mary Through the Centuries, by Tim Perry, Mary for Evangelicals, the year 2006, and another new book from the year 2006 by Scott McKnight, The Real Mary, Why Evangelical Christians Can Embrace the Mother of God. For poetry, Excuse me, for books this week, 
I've actually reviewed a poem that is published as a book. The author is Maya Angelou, and the name of the book is Mother, A Cradle to Hold Me. New York, Random House, 2006, a mere 32 pages. I checked out this book from our public library because I was intrigued by the notion of a tiny book, the entire content of which is one short poem by one of our country's most famous writers. In addition to her autobiographical works, Maya Angelou has published five volumes of poetry and has read her work at the inauguration of President Bill Clinton. There's no foreword, no preface, no afterword, no bibliography, nor any explanatory notes to Angelou's poem, Mother. Just the brief poem itself. If you did not stop to ponder and meditate, you could read the poem in five minutes, maybe even less. But that would be a shame. Angelou's poem evokes the grace and power of our mothers, and our experience of them beginning as babies, proceeding through childhood, teenage rebellion, and then adulthood. My own mother died a year ago in January. In Maya Angelou's poem, Mother, renewed my gratitude and admiration for her. Maya Angelou, Mother, a cradle to hold me. New York, Random House, 2006. For film this week, I've reviewed Who Killed the Electric Car from the year 2006. Fast, sleek, quiet, affordable, and environmentally friendly, the EV1 seemed like a dream car come of age, right? Wrong. For about 10 years, from 1996 to 2006, General Motors and other car companies invested in, built, and then leased, but never sold, the EV1 to the public. At one point, General Motors CEO Roger Smith even bragged about the car. GM then pulled the plug, claiming there was too little customer demand and no profit to be made in the electric car. This documentary film argues that's patently false. Rather, the filmmakers contend that General Motors, the Bush administration, the California Air Resources Board, the oil companies, and even apathetic consumers combined to kill the project. In fact, when customer leases expired, GM repossessed every single EV1, refused to allow customers to keep or buy them, then crushed and shredded the cars in secrecy. I especially appreciated the distinctly optimistic note this film ended on, with its belief that technological innovation and customer common sense can't be thwarted forever, despite the greed and propaganda of oil and car companies. Who killed the electric car from the year 2006? And finally, for poetry this week, 
we've posted the poem The House of Christmas by G.K. Chesterton, who lived from 1874 to 1936. There fared a mother driven forth out of an inn to roam. In the place where she was homeless, all men are at home. The crazy stable close at hand with shaking timber and shifting sand grew a stronger thing to abide and stand than the square stones of Rome. For men are homesick in their homes and strangers under the sun, and they lay on their heads in a foreign land whenever the day is done. Here we have battle and blazing eyes and chance and honor and high surprise, but our homes are under miraculous skies where the Yule tale was begun. A child in a foul stable where the beasts feed and foam, only where he was homeless are you and I at home. We have hands that fashion and heads that know, but our hearts we lost how long ago. In a place no chart nor ship can show, under the sky's dome. This world is wild as an old wives tale, and strange the plain things are. The earth is enough, and the air is enough for our wonder and our war. But our rest is as far as the fire drake swings, and our peace is put in impossible things, where clashed and thundered unthinkable wings round an incredible star. To an open house in the evening home shall men come, to an older place than Eden in a taller town than Rome. To the end of the way of the wandering star, to the things that cannot be and that are, to the place where God was homeless and all men are at home. The House of Christmas by G.K. Chesterton. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for the fourth Sunday in Advent, December 24th, 2006. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.